This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome back to the BFI podcast, a fortnightly ramble through the goings on in and around the British Film Institute and the British film industry. I'm the BFI's digital editor, Henry Barnes, and on this episode we have scary stuff as we present archive clips of Oscar golden boy Guillermo del Toro talking about his love of the grotesque. Flary stuff as BFI senior programmer Michael Blythe talks us through his picks from the lineup of our upcoming LGBTQ festival. Contrary stuff as Cardiff-based artist and organiser Rabab Ghazul explains how she's breaking down social barriers via her anti-colonial film club. And um, something about the BFI home entertainment release of Hotel Salvation, an Indian family drama that doesn't quite lend itself to anything rhyming with re, but is great nonetheless. First up, here's Michael Blythe, senior programmer of the BFI's LGBTQ festival, Flair. Now in its 32nd year, Flair brings together a lively, passionate family who come together to see the best new LGBTQ cinema. I started our chat by asking Michael what makes a Flair film. Other than the fact that all the films are united by the fact they all tell queer stories in some way, I mean, the films are hugely diverse, they're hugely different in terms of content, in terms of tone, in terms of style. So there's not really a specific Flair film, but I think that... All of them are united by this desire to kind of push what we understand by queer cinema. Something that's really exciting for us this year is that we're doing a kind of focus on disability. So we're doing quite a few films that deal with disabled people, deal with deaf people, deal with chronically ill people. And I think it's something that we don't always see represented on screen, particularly not in queer cinema. Um, We have a film called Love Scott, which is a really extraordinary Canadian documentary about a young man who was subject to a homophobic attack and was left in a wheelchair. And it's about the kind of year following the attack and him adjusting to his new life and making sense of what happened to him. Do you feel any kind of pressure as a programmer of a gay and lesbian film festival to make it a political event? Does it have to be a political event? I think it's inherently a political event. I think just putting on something like this is political. I think, you know, we have films that are directly engaged with politics and films which feel more lightweight or more kind of just, um, you know, crowd-pleasing, enjoyable films. But I think the nature of the festival 
will always be political. These films deal with so many different lives. They deal with so many different people. They deal with so many different ideas that, that politics is kind of inherent to the foundations of what we do at the festival. We have films that engage directly with politics and films which don't. But I think even those which, which don't are important stories to tell. And I think that politics is very much at the forefront of the festival. And I think it's a really kind of progressive act just putting on the, the festival itself. It always interests me when you have a festival that runs this long. Do you have festival regulars? And is there anybody you wanted to give a shout out to? <laughs> oh, we have millions of festival regulars. I mean, the thing, the great thing about Flair for me is the audiences and how dedicated they are. You know, the, the festival itself, when it happens every spring and it's like, the BFI South Bank turns into the best gay venue in the world. It's absolutely incredible. And it's like a family. It's like a family gathering. And you see the same people that you know, and these same people come. But also, we want to welcome new people, new family members into this kind of big uh, flair family that we have. So it's something that feels very much a community event. The great thing about flair is that you could come to the festival, you could come to the South Bank, and not even watch a film and feel part of the festival. Obviously, you should watch a film, but we have free events happening as well during the festival. We have club nights, we have talks. So it's important for us that it, we create a welcoming space for people, even if they can't afford to buy tickets for film. Are there any other titles that you want to uh, highlight for us? Um, yes, yeah, so our centrepiece screening this year is a really amazing documentary called A Deal With The Universe, which is directed by Jason Barker, who's actually a former festival programmer. Um, and the film charts his journey getting pregnant and, and having his, his first baby. And it's extraordinary because it's made up of home video footage that he shot over the course of kind of 10, 15 years. And what starts off, as a, um, a kind of document of charting this kind of pregnancy brings in so many different things, brings in ideas about Jason as a trans man transitioning, attitudes to that, medical advancements, the very nature of kind of pregnancy itself, the relationship with his partner who battles cancer at some point. You know, it takes on so many different ideas and themes, but it's an incredibly personal piece of work. The clinic had suggested the possibility of using donor eggs. We said, well, what about my eggs? They said they'd have to put that to their ethics committee. The ethics committee said no. They said they didn't feel that gender swapping was conducive to the welfare of a child. We were devastated. Another one of my favourites this year is a film called Beck's. Um, which stars um, Lena Hall, who's a kind of Broadway star, and um, she plays a singer-songwriter who, following kind of breakup with her girlfriend, is forced to move in with her slightly conservative mother in the small town that she grew up in. And when she's there, she starts her relationship with a, uh, a married woman who's uh, in a kind of slightly unhappy marriage, and a relationship between these two women blossoms. Um, it's one of my favourites in the festival because Lena Hall is such an extraordinary central figure. She's so charismatic and so engaging. And I think it's one of those films that, on paper, you might think, ah, I've kind of seen that before. You know, it's a familiar kind of narrative sometimes with Within, within queer cinema but it does something different with it it's got such warmth and such energy and I think it's one of those films that is very easy to watch it's a kind of effortless film but it really stays with you I am single and I'm broke and I'm back home living with my mom oh no I should play here okay 
Thank you so much for coming out. Now I know how Beyonce feels. Beyonce still lives with her mom, right? I'm going to end with a tricky question. Um, what's your weirdest memory from Flares in years past? Oh, my weirdest memory um, would probably be years and years ago when I started on the festival, I was a kind of program guest assistant. And um, in one of my first years, um, RuPaul came over for the festival for Star Booty. Who remembers that film? <laughs> and, um, and I hadn't quite anticipated what it meant to have RuPaul at the, the festival. was pretty new <laughs> yeah. to this whole thing. And so I'd booked some little cab for, for Ru to, to take from the hotel to here and, and was then told that Ru would be in, in full drag and, and wouldn't fit <laughs> into a cab. So it was a last minute scramble to find some kind of other transportation to, to get them here. And suffice to say I did, but it was possibly the most stressful hour of my life. <laughs> so start your engines, but not in a tiny taxi, preferably. Indeed, yes. She deserves something far bigger than that. And BFI Flare takes place at the BFI South Bank in London from March 21st to April the 1st. Find out more about the lineup and book tickets at bfi.org.uk forward slash flare. On to a man who was once a fish out of water in Hollywood but has scaled the heights and found his place. Guillermo del Toro was named Best Director at this week's Oscars for his homo piscine love story The Shape of Water, which also won Best Picture. He appeared with the film at last year's London Film Festival. Here's Guillermo on Monsters the Weinsteins, sorry that's Monsters, comma, the Weinsteins, Mexico's Sexy Jesus, and the difficulty of getting drunk when you weigh over 300 pounds. A few notes, Sally is Sally Hawkins, star of The Shape of Water, and the drinking buddies Guillermo talks about are Alejandro González Iñárritu and Alfonso Caron. I was a very lonely child, you know, um, I was very strange. And when I was a kid from the crib, I, I started, I saw my brother and I stayed late and watched a movie, a program called The Outer Limits. And uh, we shouldn't have stayed late. And it was uh, an episode called The Mutant with Warren Oates. And you were two at the time. It was, it's a house where we lived when, from when I was a baby to age four. And I was sleeping on the crib, so around two. And uh, it's, it's, he appears with giant eyes and a bald head, and I started screaming, and I couldn't stop. And my brother, uh, was a bit of an asshole, <laughs> grabbed me and put me in the crib and zipped me up, zipped it close. And then he had the great uh, idea to, uh, the, the, in, in a magic shop, they used to sell these rubber eggs as a joke. And he put the eggs, and he put a, a stocking on his head, so he looked bald and with giant eyes, and he peeked into the crib, and I peed all over the <laughs> crib, and I, and I was so scared. And then, from then on, I started having lucid nightmares, which meant I would wake up and dream that I was waking up in the crib, and but everything was alive in the room. There would be things in the closet, there would be, my parents had this green shaggy rug, and, and it was a sea of fingers waving, waiting for me to go to the bathroom. So I peed in the crib again. <laughs> and my mother got really angry at me. And so one night, I, this is completely true, I got up into the crib and I said to the monsters in the room, if you let me go to the bathroom, I'll be your friend forever. There was a moment that was very religious for me when uh, Boris Karloff, as the creature, comes to the threshold in Frankenstein. I, I was moved to tears. I was like, I saw the Messiah. You know, I saw, I was St. Paul on the road to Damascus. 
I saw a, a Christ-like figure full of suffering and beatitude. You know, his eyes were up, sort of like a saint. Or like in, in Mexico, the uh, Mexico and Philippines have the goriest uh, Catholic imagery. And, and, they, and for some reason, Jesus has like an exposed bone, fra- exposed bone fracture, a, a rib sticking out. But it looks like he's coming. He's like, oh! No, it's like, it's like, it's weird combination. <laughs> it's like a, it's like the ecstasy of Saint Teresa by Bernini, you know. It's like, okay. So I, when Karloff came in, his eyes were up, and I was, that's like Jesus. I started drawing monsters when I was very, very young. My, I spent a long time with my grandmother living there, and uh, she hated that I drew monsters. She thought I was uh, abnormal, <laughs> and th- they took me to a, to a psychologist, and, and he gave me a cube of clay and said, sculpt whatever you want, and I sculpted a skeleton that didn't, <laughs> didn't help my case. Uh, <laughs> there is a nice anecdote, but, which I've never told anyone, but it's funny. My mother started reading child psychology and came, uh, came late one night and saw these abnormal drawings in the kitchen, and she said, I'm afraid Guillermo may be severely damaged, she told my father, because these drawings indicate a low intelligence, and my father says, I drew that. (laughs) 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 Anyway, (laughs) poor dad. (laughs) Two horrible things happened in the late 90s. My father was kidnapped, and I worked with the Weinsteins. And I don't know which one was worse. Actually, the kidnapping made more sense. I, I knew what they wanted, you know? And uh, I don't go to parties in Hollywood. I hate them because it's like uh, they're not even parties. It's everybody you avoided during the year <laughs> together in one place, you know? And, uh, and, and, but Alfonso, Alfonso calls me and says, Alejandro and I are going to the Golden Globes party. And I go, okay, I'm watching Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> you know? I'd rather stay. He says, look, get dressed, you fat f***. Get dressed. Come on. I said, look, he says, we're going to get shit-faced. I go, I hate drinking. And he says, and, and, and we want to do it with you. I go, look, if I'm going to drink, I don't, I'm not gonna, he says, I'll send a car for you. Uh, I said, okay. So he sends a car for me. Now, I'm big. I'm over 300 pounds. It's a huge amount of mass. It takes a lot of alcohol to get me drunk. <laughs> and it goes away real fast. Like, I can be drunk, with it, and 10 minutes later, I'm like, I can put together a Rubik's Cube. <laughs> and so I arrive, and I say, OK, are we going to get shit-faced? They say, yeah, 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 we're going to get shit-faced. OK, great. So I go, I'm going to start, and I'll catch up with you. And I have 14 shots of tequila. <laughs> I, I, hate the, I hate the flavor of alcohol. It burns my tongue. I like chocolate malt. I like Baileys. I'm like a, <laughs> uh, the most inoffensive drinker. You know. I, want a, I like a white Russian, something with milk. So I, I, drink, I drink the 14 shots, and I go, OK, now we can start. I go on and say, Alejandro, uh, uh, OK, we're ready. He says, oh, no, you know. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. What? We're not going to drink. <laughs> what? So I'm, I said, I'm going to leave. So I'm leaving with my 14 shots of tequila in me, and I see Sally. And I go, hey! And she goes, <laughs> I go, I'm writing a movie for you where you fall in love with a fish. <laughs> Guillermo del Toro, when it comes to entertaining interviews, he's a shoal thing. You can watch the whole of Guillermo's LFS screen talk on the BF5's YouTube channel. On to our spotlight feature. This week we're focusing on Rabab Ghazul, an artist, film programmer, and community organizer working out of Cardiff. Rabab's company, Gentle Radical, a member of the BFI's film audience network, has received national lottery funding via Film Hub Wales. Here's Rabab on the phone from Cardiff. Kind of 
range of barriers, I think, are constantly playing out within this work. And probably for a lot of cultural institutions, we're really interested in how they prioritise dealing with some of those. A lot of organisations and cultural institutions are kind of themselves often working out of systems that are kind of inherently imbalanced and kind of cultural systems that often have imbalance with them. So a lot of the work that we do around diversity often has quite a sort of... Um, token or kind of very, you know, it's been, has been characterised and formed by sort of temp, temporary measures for communities. We go directly into communities, we go directly into, you know, ESOL classes, we go, we turn up at mums and toddlers groups, we turn up at a BAME women's uh, health event, and we physically go into spaces where we will meet women from diverse backgrounds. Some of the women that have been coming to our events have been coming for 13 years now that that's you know and we've had thousands of women come come through through our doors we also screen work in the spaces that are used by our communities sometimes those are faith-based spaces so for example we use a community center attached to one of the local hindu temples um because actually people know that space we we work with you know, grassroots community spaces that communities have been involved in and know and are familiar with. Um, so we believe very much in, um, when we talk about access and engagement, in trying to displace from um, traditional mainstream spaces. Um, one of the models around access has been getting black and brown people into, let's say, largely white kind of cultural mainstream spaces. And we would argue that the idea isn't just to diversify those spaces, the idea is to kind of also say there's a whole bunch of communities that are doing quite interesting things, often under the radar, and perhaps we can actually displace from the cultural epicenters into some of those other spaces in the city. So we're interested in this traffic moving in both ways. I was born in Iraq and grew up in, in the Middle East and in, in Iraq till I was 10 before moving uh, to Britain and when we moved to Britain we weren't under the impression that we we would be here permanently but be because of the, the war in Iraq and then subsequently we had two Gulf Wars we remained and are very fortunate to have been able to remain but I think that kind of background it means that inherently you are politicised about the place that you've come from and about a whole bunch of things around what, what's happened to where you've come from. Coming from a country that has has had so much of its its culture, its resources, um, its history, its its capacity to sustain itself, kind of wholesale destroyed, and there has yet to be any any reparation for that. Um, strongly informs one's politics. Ideas of justice kind of inform a lot of what I do. That can be on a, a kind of really a large. Uh, I suppose much more globally inscribed way uh, in terms of some of the kind of global power dynamics that kind of continue to play out within our, our, our world. But also I think those exact same power dynamics actually play out at, at, at the level of our communities. So the same essential processes, the same systemic inequities on a global level actually play out on a micro, micro level. Um, and they come back to issues of power, issues of privilege, issues of distribution of wealth, issues of control over narrative and co colonial resource and, and imperialist intentions. And I, I, I think um, that's actually, I, I see that playing out on micro levels and I see that on macro levels. When you experience privilege, actually art doesn't have to be political. <laughs> um, 
when people have access to a whole range of kind of privileges that others don't, then often art is, in a way, you, you can avoid, you can choose to, you can elect to, to distance yourself or to not take into account um, the power dynamics and therefore the political dynamics of, of, of culture. Um, but I think when you're on the other side of that, politics is always there. I, I would argue that politics is, is permanently there in any reading of culture and in any kind of cultural engagement. Because of the systems upon which culture operates, they are systems that are absolutely inscribed within within power dynamics, um, within opportunities for some communities and not others, for some artists and not others, for some institutions and not others. We just have to look at our, our museums and what's in them. That really beautiful moment at the, at the beginning of Black Panther when they're in the British Museum. <laughs> It's like our cultures are literally inscribed and written with the histories of colonized people. Um, so I, I find it hard to separate those things out. I don't think it's healthy we separate those things out. Um, I think until we move towards a more just, politically just, socially just society, I, I, I don't see why there's any, any reason to stop talking about those issues soon. But at the, at the same time, I will argue like passionately for the the diversity of culture in all its nuance and when I talk about diversity of culture I don't mean culture made you know by more black and brown people I mean that the fullest diversity of culture is contemporary culture experimental culture folk culture populist culture a whole range of different ways of expressing ourselves and doing this amazing thing that human beings do which is generate this creativity and engaging with with what it means to be alive. And I just champion culture as this incredibly, incredibly powerful tool for us to kind of make our way through the world. And I think it's at its best when it provokes us to ask questions about how the world is constructed and whether that is currently good for everyone. Gentle Radical's Rabab Ghazul. Find out more about their work on Facebook, search Gentle Radical, and you can find out more about the Film Audience Network on bfi.org.uk. And finally, Hotel Salvation is open for business. The Indian family drama, directed by 24-year-old feature first-timer Shubhavshish Bhutiani, was recently released on BFI DVD and Blu-ray after an impressive theatrical run last August. Reviewers called Hotel Salvation, which stars Adil Hussain, Lalit Bhil, and Gitanjali Kulkani, a triumph, life-affirming, and surprisingly roomy for the rate. Julie Pierce, our head of programme planning, was the person who found the film and snapped it up for the BFI. I asked her where she discovered Hotel Salvation. So it was a cold Tuesday afternoon at the Berlin Alley and I was kicking my heels in the market looking for, looking for something to see that would fill a couple of hours. And uh, I was with Claire Binns, who's the managing director of Picture House, and we happened upon Hotel Salvation and we thought, oh, sounds quite interesting. And then I suddenly had a light bulb moment because I realised it was an Indian film. And one of the reasons um, I was at the Berlin Ali, I was actually looking for films to support the BFI's India on Film Project. It was like a major cultural celebration between India and the UK. Anyway, so we went into the cinema. There was just a handful of people in there and we started watching it and... I was literally blown away. It was such a fabulous little film. Can you describe for us what you responded to when you saw it and what did you like about it? Well, it's a very kind of gentle Indian art house film and it it really follows the ordeal of an overworked modern son who's forced to accompany his 77-year-old father to Varanasi. 
So the 77-year-old father has a dream in which he feels he is going to die shortly. And he doesn't want to die at home. He wants to go to Varanasi, which is India's most holy city. And um, so they go to Varanasi and there's actually a hotel there, Hotel Salvation. Basically, people are allowed to stay in the hotel for 12 days to see if they die during that period. And if they don't die within the 12 days, then they have to move out. I just sensed a great plot line for the third episode of Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, <laughs> though. <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> As you said, the son's very busy and he's lost that ability to look after his father and, and check in with the family. He's too busy working all the time. And that felt quite universal to me. And I wondered how much those kind of themes are speaking to you when you're thinking about presenting a film from India to a, a broader audience in the UK. Uh, yes, those themes absolutely uh, spoke to me and I've, I felt certain that we could get a younger audience for it as well. When we did some analysis after the release, we found out that there was a good young audience that uh, that came to the film. Uh, we found that about a third of the audience was new to the BFI South Bank venue, really? which was uh, really, really heartening. And uh, the number of under 25-year-olds uh, who bought tickets um, was well it was the same it was the same number as we get on an average week which was really heartening because the film is about death yeah so you wouldn't expect them to, to ship up <laughs> usually so yeah. uh, but that is interesting i think sometimes we tend to assume that young people only want to see films about young people well hopefully that debunked that myth so uh, yeah <laughs> I mean, one of the great things about Hotel Salvation as well is we were able to put a short film on the front of it, which came from the collection of the BFI National Archive. And the BFI National Archive have this amazing collection of early Indian films. Robin Baker, the head curator there, pointed out a film to me that had actually been miscatalogued as being of Calcutta, but it wasn't. It was of Varanasi and the Ghats at Varanasi. And this film is about a minute and a half long, and it's just a sweep of the whole riverfront of Varanasi. And we uh, we showed this to Shubhashish uh, and to Sanjay, and they just couldn't believe it. The film is from like the early 1900s and it just really spoke to Hotel Salvation. And it was great that we put that on the front of the film for the release. So again, that was seen all around the UK and is now on the BFI player as well as part of the India on Film Collection. It's great that you can have that context for the audience, but also yeah. for the filmmakers themselves. If Absolutely, not sure yeah. No, they literally couldn't believe it, yeah. so they were really excited by it. And Varanasi, it just hasn't changed at all in a hundred years, over a hundred years. Yeah, it was extraordinary. Hotel Salvation is available on DVD and Blu-ray from the BFI shop and bfi.org. You can and should check out more of our Indra on Film content on the BFI player. That's it for this episode. Special thanks to Michael Blythe, Julie Pierce and Rabab Ghazul for their time. And to Guillermo del Toro for knowing his way around an anecdote. Or five. You can find out more about the BFI at bfi.org.uk and more about this show on Apple Podcasts and the BFI SoundCloud page. I'm Henry Barnes and you can badger me on Twitter at Henry H. Barnes. Thanks very much for listening. See you next time. And we're still in need of a clever last line.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.